Welcome to the latest experts in the field podcast from Foot Anstey's Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. I'm Edward Venwell and I head up the rural team at Foot Anstey. Alongside me today is my colleague Daniel Spalding, who's a senior associate in our team. In this episode, we'll be considering renewables opportunities for rural landowners. Danielle and I both advise landowners on a range of disputes, and that often involves resolving problems which are hindering a landowner or operator's plans for a renewables project. Also joining me today is Qatar Cherry, Managing Associate in our Energy and Infrastructure team. Qatar has been with Fertansi since 2018 and brings her extensive experience in acting for large landowners, developers, and for funders and investors on renewable energy projects across the country. Hello, both. Hi there. Hi. So first of all, um, so it's worth setting the scene for all of you listening. Obviously, over the last few years, there's been great growth in renewables, and a real focus on this came uh, last year with COP26 conference in Glasgow in the autumn and the publication of the UK's Net Zero Strategy Policy published in October. That set out the plans to uh, and the commitment to fully decarbonise the UK's power system by uh, 2035. So for rural landowners, there's a great deal of opportunity here. And I'm sure you've seen this, uh, Kataya, um, with your contacts and clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a really exciting time to work in this sector because I've been working in renewables, solar and wind, and more recently storage and EV for, you know, but I've been doing it for 10 years or so. And there's a real zeitgeist now. You know, people are talking about it. It's in the news you know, people are asking me, oh, you, you know, just in my friendship group, oh, you know, you work with solar stuff, you work with wind projects, which, you know, people just like, oh, what's that before? So yeah, the time is now. It's exciting time to be um, here and, um, and, and seeing where it's going to go. And and there's only ever going to be more with government backing and, you know, more understanding of how the projects work and how they can be funded and financed. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity here, for sure. Danielle, you and I see with a lot of our uh, rural clients the opportunities, but where do you sort of see those yourself? I think, like Katai said, it's a really hot topic at the moment. And with the green energy technology that has advanced significantly over the last decade, costs are falling considerably and that political pressure to decarbonise our economy, it's never, it's never been greater, really. So that's creating quite a lot of interest, like Katai said, an opportunity for landowners. Rural landowners, they're going to be exposed to the effects of climate change and there's real emphasis on them being part of that solution and facilitating that. So I mean in terms of the work we do, the NFU in particular, they're playing quite a big support supporting role in this, for example. They're driving net zero in the agricultural sector and rather stating the obvious, but you know it's the farmers that have got the land. And it's also, a, it's a way of diversifying their farm income. Katai, have you got anything to add in terms of you know, the opportunities for rural landowners in this area over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, there's, I read an article recently about the, um, the kind of middle of England and the, where there were coal power stations. And obviously they take up a certain amount of area, but they, as they, they come offline, there were huge opportunities for solar developments to use up the grid capacity that those coal power stations were using and who's got the land like you say it's the la- it's the farmers it's um landowners that can really maximize taking that opportunity to um to use the grid capacity that will be coming online 
over the next few years. And, and the other thing that Daniel mentioned was the costs falling. Now, we had a big boom in solar um, when there were subsidies, and those, those obviously went away in 2015. And But there is still a solar market there. Um, and the costs are coming down all the time. And on storage, on lithium-ion batteries, the costs have fallen by 85% between 2010 and 2019. So these are becoming viable options for developers, in which case that flows through for more people getting into the market and therefore wanting to bring these projects to fruition. And the grid are backing it as well. You know, they need, you can't have intermittent supply, which renewable energy is when you know, the sun doesn't always shine in this country, unfortunately, <laughs> the wind doesn't always blow. And to back up those types of energy um, creation, you need battery storage. And so the, the cost coming down, the need for it and, and, you know, the political climate at the moment just, you know, is the, is the perfect mix. Yeah. If you were, yeah. if you're a landowner looking at these types of projects, what, what would you be concerned about? Is there anything in particular that we should be flagging to landowners to really think about when when they are thinking about entering into these these types of schemes and projects? Yeah. So the things that landowners, you know, that I deal with really care about is is the land. You know, they're the stewards of the land, and they want to make sure that the land that is given over to one of these projects is able to be maintained either by the, the developers themselves or that they still have rights to be able to come on and make sure that the hedgerows are properly protected and and maintained and they've got access to the rest of the land that isn't cut off by a project being in a certain location because obviously with solar you know there's certain sites that are better than others and the proximity to a grid connection point is also important for keeping the costs viable for for the projects on the developer's side. So, so those things all got to kind of marry up to make sure that the landowners haven't got any land that's cut off and they've got the relevant rights. I guess the other thing obviously is making sure they get a return on um, handing over these proje- um, the land for a certain amount of time because these projects do tend to have quite long lease terms. So we're talking 30, 40 years plus. So it's a long-term use of that land. But having said that, you know, if it's suitable, you often see grazing rights within the same fields that solar projects have. Batteries are a bit different. You need to kind of fence them off and they are a, a more intensive use of the land that's used, but it's a much smaller area for battery storage. So, yeah, you don't you don't need as much land, but then there's not the grazing issues as well. Yeah, well, I think landowners have to think really carefully about these opportunities, because obviously if you are tying up the land like Sakatai for 30, 40 years, for one of these schemes, you need to appreciate that you're taking all of it or part of it out of other potential uses or development. So that might be farming basis, or it might be um, for environmental schemes, or it might be for other development opportunities like housing or commercial use in the future. So you need to think it through very carefully before you tie up the land uh, on those sorts of uh, on those sorts of schemes. Yeah, and the other thing landowners need to be aware of now is that as part of the planning process of getting these projects through there is a biodiversity net gain requirement of all development and that applies to these renewable projects as well so not only does consideration need to be given by landowners and developers of of the land for the actual project itself but what other land is going to be needed or what other requirements are going to be imposed by planning to enable this to happen in relation to biodiversity and things that I've seen are kind of lapwing nesting sites and skylarks and you know there's a number of different things that 
the usual previous use of the land have enabled certain species to be successful in and there's a consideration of how the change of use will impact on those and, and therefore there's sometimes mitigation land required which is kind of in addition to the just the fixed site that people are thinking about that's also needed to be managed in a certain way to make sure that those biodiversity net gain requirements are met. We touched a bit on planning there and site suitability. What, from your experience, Katia, what what are a developer's expectations of a rural landowner? Well, in the in the best case, you know, as with any tenant, they they kind of want to take the land and then to be able to do what they like with it to a certain yeah. extent. But there's an expect there. I think there's a much better understanding now of kind of where landowners are coming from. I think, you know pre when there were subsidies and soda there was a lot of cowboys out there and people just trying to land grab a little bit to to get the the subsidies through the players in the market now are much more savvy about what is what is realistic there is a market there is a standard set of kind of expected positions on certain things and like i said before the the ability for landowners to access um to maintain are kind of well acknowledged and the obligations to maintain on the um, tenants, the developers themselves are also expected. And, you know, O&M contracts, operation, um, operation and maintenance, it's a standard thing in this, not just for the, the solar panels or storage, the batteries themselves, or indeed wind turbines, but also, you know, the land on which they sit. And that's all kind of part and parcel of those, those services that are, are carried out on these sites. Yeah, I, mean, I think the market has really matured over over the last few years, and the and the players, like you say, in the market are much more commercial and generally speaking reasonable to deal with, and understand that the deal's got to work for all parties to, for ever to come off, isn't it? And make it sense. I think yeah. um, in terms of some of the issues that we see where we're helping your team, you know, Qatar, very often we find that sometimes the landowner and the developer and the operator haven't really thought through perhaps the parties got rights over the land. So, for example, if there are sitting uh, old-style agricultural tenancies uh, on the land. Some of those issues aren't always thought through in advance and can prove a bit of a hindrance sort of fairly late on the deal. So those yep. sorts of things, <laughs> we know it, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we, do, we do, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, a lot of those things just need to be thought through very carefully um, uh, uh, and and just as part of the plan before you get up, get up and running with the project. If you're going to go to an operator with a site and you're going to try and do housing development or renewals project like this, then you do need to think through the questions around uh, any tenants or any third parties with rights away just to be able to present an attractive proposition yeah, to, uh, to an operator, isn't it? Otherwise, it's yeah. just a, a delay in problems <laughs> and queries. I can't tell you how many times they go, oh, oh, by the way, there's an agricultural tenant on this land, which you thought is absolutely <laughs> fine. And then, and then I'm coming along to you guys to be like, ah, help me with this. Yeah, absolutely. From a, from a developer's perspective, the landowner telling them everything to do with the land upfront is super helpful because then we can properly assess you know how whether and the developer can assess how relevant it is you know if it's for a solar project um, or it's on the actual land that is needed um, for the project then obviously we have to look at termination rights of of those tenancies but if it's just where an easement is going to be put for a cable then there's opportunity for the tenant to sit to continue to to use that land yeah. and it's just about rights of access to facilitate yeah. installing the cable because once the cable's in and buried then it shouldn't impact on how that land can continue to be used by that that tenant so yeah, yeah. early early bit, information is always yeah. always definitely yeah, the best look, policy 
a little, a little bit of upfront planning, you can have a sensible conversation with any tenant and uh, and resolve these issues before they cause you know queries and delays down the line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and you know what? Also, just um, thinking about your whole landowning as landholding. So a, a developer, off what they do is they do kind of mapping sites of where the grid connections are, and then they kind of you know look at Google Maps and just go, oh, you know that field looks good, that field looks good. But actually, landowners have a much better understanding of their own land than the developers do. And and if a developer saying comes up and says, look, you know, I've I've got an interest in putting a solar project or a battery project, or whatever, on your land. Go it. This is why I think it's good. Having that kind of open mind to go, okay, well, you think that field's good, but have you thought about I've got something else in there? I've got another field that could potentially be useful for you yeah. instead. And then they can cost up, you know, what the distances to their grid connection and everything and whether that's feasible. I've definitely had projects where for whatever reason the original fields haven't worked out but a landowner has been open to saying well you know yeah how about this one instead and and the developers then made it work and gone a different route for their cabling and and both parties have therefore been ultimately happy with the outcome yeah no ab- absolutely as danielle and i deal with um often deal with um disputes or things gone wrong what we often say to clients is you need to have in place proper documentation before you start any of these uh sorts of projects so when you're dealing with these uh, the necessary legal documents Katia, to ins- what do you look at to ensure that you're protecting the the landowner's concerns but also balancing those issues that are real must-haves for any any developer you should start with i mean rents and how the rents are calculated obviously that's an important thing for the landowners on that information really and um, the if it's a solar rent it's usually done on a per acre basis whereas on a battery rent it's done up on a per megawatt capacity basis instead and that's just how the market has kind of grown up on the basis I think that battery storage takes up much less acreage than than solar other things that we do I mean I've said a lot about the access and about obligations to maintain and obligations if one during the construction phase if the if there's damage caused to the land or the landlord's adjacent land during the construction phase, obligations to um, make good that land um, to the landowner's satisfaction. That's another protection. And also you do see compensation being paid. So um, the way these deals are structured is that it's an option agreement and then an option to take a lease. So the option is in favour of the developer and the developer could then, during a certain period, decide to to take up the lease or not and during that option period it will be going off and getting planning and doing surveys and making sure that the site is viable for what it wants to do and if it is then it will exercise the option and get the lease granted during that period the landowner can continue to use the land for its current use um, so if a crop is planted obviously the landowner doesn't want that crop to be lost if the, the developer then comes up and goes yeah I'm ready to go now please so yeah. there's often compensation provisions put in so that that crop loss is compensated for or there's a period depending on what time of year it is you know an ability for the the landlord to harvest that crop and recoup it before the option is then actually exercised and and the lease granted and then there's the normal leasehold rights that a landlord has in terms of forfeiture which is basically the right to terminate if the tenant does anything in breach of of its of its obligations under the lease so that sits there um, one of the questions i often get asked uh, Katara, is around you know, what you would be normal sort of provisions in terms of 
you know, removal of equipment at the end of the term and at the end of the arrangement and and uh, what the expectations in terms of putting it back to what it was what's what's the sort of norm that you sort of see and and how is that documented yeah the, i mean the, the market's moved on this a bit previously planning they often there was often a planning obligation to put aside a um a security sum to for reinstatement everyone was very concerned about getting the land back as it was i think that has kind of moved more into a, being a commercial agreement between the landowner and the developer. So you often mm-hmm. see a decommissioning security in place and it takes various forms. It can either be an amount of money that's put aside by the tenant um, developer over like the last few years of the term, or it can be an insurance policy that's taken out or in some cases, you know, a, a bank bond or guarantee in some form to basically say an acknowledgement that it costs a bit of money at the end of the term to get rid of all of the equipment so the land can be given back in the state it was when it was taken. And at that point, that the, the income from the project has ceased because the solar panels or the batteries are no longer doing the job that they were installed for. The other thing we see, actually, and it's becoming more common, is a, a buyback or a, or a give back effectively right of of the equipment so the landlord has a choice of saying do you know what actually yes commercially you might not be able to get as much income from these panels or this battery that makes it viable for you as a developer but I have still got a use for this energy on my land and I would like to keep some or all of of it and then at that situation it's usually they just you buy it for a pound effectively and they remain in situ and in that scenario then the tenant doesn't have to reinstate they just leave it as it is and the landlord takes on all of the the residual benefit of the energy production or or storage that's really interesting that point in terms of kind of top tips for a landowner looking to embark on a project edward what would your top tips be for a landowner I think you've got to really view it as a really, this is obviously by definition a long-term project. So you've got to think about the implications of taking that area of land out of use for a long period of time. And that really comes back to one of my sort of key points that I would say to any any client talking to me about this sort of topic is they really do need some specialist advice, uh, particularly from a really good land agent. There's lots of you know, good land agents who really have great experience in this area, can help advise on these sorts of things about what are good, sensible commercial terms. That, a, uh, that an operator would be looking at. Other good sources information from the NFU. Um, uh, it can be a great help on these, on these types of issues. And really it's about early, good, sensible planning of how you're going to you know, engage with, uh, in, with an operator to get a, get a, good, get a good deal. Gatai, what about you? Yeah, I think from my perspective, and this is you know, maybe a bit selfish when I'm <laughs> um, acting for developers in particular, but getting a landowner lawyer that knows about renewable projects because often you know landowners have their their own lawyers they've used for a long time and they don't necessarily have the experience of these types of projects and having that really shortcuts negotiations because they are different the leases are different from your standard commercial lease and there's some you know specialist things certain things that you would expect in a normal commercial lease that you don't see in a solar or battery lease and vice versa. So having someone on your side that knows the market 
is really helpful and in it it makes everything go quicker the one good thing for landowners is that the developer usually pays all your costs um but again (laughs) (laughs) but which is great when i'm acting for landowner clients but again from a developer's pockets are not you know completely bottomless they will always try and and limit that to a certain amount and if you can have a, a lawyer who genuinely can keep within kind of the the market normal costs it it helps everyone and it helps the relationship going forward and you know you're in this for the long haul like we said it's a it's a 30 40 year lease usually so you know you want those relationships to get off on a good foot yeah yeah well, um, thank you, Tara and Danielle. Um, really great, informative discussion. I hope everyone listening found it useful. I certainly do think there's a great deal of opportunity here for, uh, for landowners in this area over the coming years, and it's going to continue to be a really, uh, uh, really significant hot topic. Um, please, everyone, um, subscribe if you found this useful today so that you can pick up our, our future podcasts. And also do take a look at uh, our website where there's further information, what we all do, and particularly uh, uh, Kataya. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Nice chat. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Foot Anstey Experts in the Field podcast. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at footanstey.com. <laughs>